It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Kennedy. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Harris Faulkner. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. I'm Dave Anthony. Another interest rate hike is expected today as the Federal Reserve faces a tricky time with the economy. They got to thread the needle. They got to raise rates high enough, fast enough to slow growth, keep inflation expectations down, but not so high so far that it undermines things like housing and pushes us in a recession. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A deadly drug is pouring into the country. Thousands of Americans are dying and lawmakers are arguing over the solution. As some in law enforcement say, a sense of urgency is missing. So it's really sad and it's very, very negligent on behalf of the government that they're not stepping up and they're not doing the job to protect the citizens first of America. And I'm Stephen Moore. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. How healthy or sick is the economy? We'll find out over the next two days. Inflation is much too high, and we understand the hardship it is causing. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said that back in May after a second interest rate hike this year. We'll hear from him again today after increase number four, with the Fed trying to tamp down inflation and the 9.1% consumer price increase in June when gas at a record high. But... Could those rate hikes slow the economy too much? My hope is we go from this rapid growth to steady growth. And uh, so see, we'll see some coming down. But I don't think we're going to, uh, God willing, I don't think we're going to see a recession. President Biden and his economic team say even if a report tomorrow on GDP shows a second straight quarter of economic contraction, we won't be in a recession. Republican Senator Rick Scott says what? I think if you go to Google and you put in recession and you look at the definition, I think it's two quarters of negative GDP. The White House says actually a recession is declared by a group called the National Bureau of Economic Research, assessing many factors. But Senator Scott counters. When we have negative GDP, what's that mean? That means you make less money. That means people are going to get laid off. That means the value of things are going to go down, like your home. So the Fed has its work cut out for it dealing with all this. Job creation is good. Unemployment is low. People have work, but obviously inflation is very, very high, painfully high. Mark Zandi is chief economist for Moody's Analytics. That is really cutting into people's purchasing power. And so we're struggling. And obviously the Fed has to get that inflation down. So they're raising interest rates. Growth is going to slow. So this is a very tricky, we're in a very tricky period here, uh, very close to uh, to going into recession. Yeah, so you, you say tricky. The Fed, for a, quite a while, had kept interest rate levels really, really low. Then the economy did better after COVID. Last year, there was all the talk that inflation was only going to be temporary, not really a big deal. The Fed did not take action. Do you think that was a mistake? Uh, yeah, in hindsight, for sure. Uh, but I think what the mistake here was, or what was not understood, was the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic, you know, if you think back a year ago, Dave, when the vaccines got rolled out, we thought it was over. Uh, remember President Biden giving a speech, go out and enjoy your families on July 4th. But, it, yeah. know, of course, he declared independence. We declared independence from COVID that day. 
last yeah. year. Yeah. Now, you know, and obviously that wasn't the case. And so then we had supply disruptions and labor market issues, and that just caused inflation to go higher. And then, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that wasn't even on the radar screen. That came on, you know, late last year, early this caused oil prices to go skyward and that's added to the inflationary pressure. So yeah, it was a mistake, but you know, I think an understandable one given the uncertainties around the pandemic and of course the surprise of the Russian invasion. Certainly gas prices were a huge factor. We hit a record high in June. How big a factor is energy for inflation and the ripple effect from energy to other areas of spending and in the economy? Yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, just to give you a sense of it, so inflation, let's say, is 9%. We're rounding. More than half of the increase in inflation over the past years is related to those higher oil prices. And of course, that's because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, Republicans have maintained that, look, even before Vladimir Putin went into Ukraine in February of 2024, the price of gas had surged since President Biden took office. They blamed his energy policies. I know you're not necessarily wanting to get into the politics of that, but prices were a lot higher before that, correct? Well, they were. I'm not sure. I mean, go back to October, November of last year. I mean, Russia came on the radar screen in December of last year, and that's when energy traders started pushing up prices. But if you go back to October, November, oil prices were 75 bucks a barrel. Gasoline was going for you know, three twenty-five, three hundred, three dollars and fifty cents a gallon, which is just exactly where it was pre-pandemic. Yeah, when the president took office, gas was two dollars and change, so it was well under three dollars. But gas was way down during the initial parts of COVID. It plunged with oil plunging in like May of twenty twenty, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, two bucks was when we were in the teeth of the pandemic. No one was driving. I mean, remember we were shut down and. And we didn't really reopen until, you know, well in, about, until about this time last year. Hard to hard to believe. Feels like ages ago. It, it, does. it really does. Yeah. But, you know, it, two bucks, that was because no one was driving. Uh, that, that That's an economy that's flat on its back. Are we in a recession now? Let me, I, I want you to hear this exchange uh, just on uh, on Monday. Martha McCallum on Fox News, had an exchange with Gene Sperling, who is a White House economic advisor. And it's about a recession because we may get the report on Thursday that we're in for a second straight quarterly decline in GDP. I want you to hear this and react. I covered the economy for, for many years. I was told by everybody I spoke to uh, that, that two negative quarters, two contracting quarters, means that the economy is in a recession. That is not the actual definition of a recession. It is a significant contractionary period over a few months. You're going to still argue that we're not in a recession, even if we get another quarter of negative growth? I don't think there's any view that would that would interpret the, this second quarter or these six months as being recessionary. Okay. Who's right? Well, we're not in recession. I mean, we were getting a boatload of jobs. I mean, in the first half of this year, Average monthly job growth was close to a half a million. I mean, that's way higher than what you would typically see in a well-functioning economy. It'd be closer to 100K. You had a record number of open job positions. The layoffs, they were at record lows. Uh, so uh, it just doesn't make sense that you would call this period a recession. And I don't think the arbiters of this, the you know, Business Cycle Dating Committee, the Group of Academic Economists of the National Bureau of Economic Research, We'll label this a recession. But obviously, we've all heard about that two negative quarters in a row as a recession. So 
that's not true always? No, well, that's a, a rule of thumb. You know, that historically, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP kind of lined up very closely to the decision by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, they, it lined up, but not always. And in this case, certainly uh, not the case. We did have a rise in first-time unemployment claims last week, and that's where we would start to see it, right? You know, you would expect uh, UI claims to rise. And at 250000 per week, that's where we are right now. That's okay. That's consistent with a pretty good labor market. But as you point out, the trajectory, the trend line here is, is a little disturbing. If it continues to rise in a few weeks from now, when you ask me back, we're at 275 per week or 300 per week, that would indicate that, you know, recession is uh, increasingly likely. Right. Now, obviously, everybody paying more for gas, paying more for groceries. There's a lot of concern. Consumer spending is a big driver for the economy. Where are we on that? Consumers are hanging tough. Uh, they keep spending. I mean, they're switching what they're spending their money on. You know, in the pandemic, because we were stuck at home, we were buying lots of stuff, goods. Uh, now we're out and about and traveling and doing other things. So we're spending less on stuff. So if you see Walmart announcing weak sales, that's because people are switching what they're spending their money on. But they're spending their money on. I'm out traveling today and I can tell you, you know, hotels are full. The airports are full. People are out and about. Uh, and in aggregate, spending is still reasonably OK. It's still good, at least good enough to keep the economy moving forward. OK, now the Fed may do another three quarters of a percentage point interest rate uh, uh, hike. We had that in June, half a percent in May, quarter percent in March. This means, though, on the other side, for consumers to borrow, the cost is going up. So what does that do? Yeah, well, that's part of the Fed's intent to slow the economy. You know, they're raising interest rates. So, you know, that raises the cost of getting a mortgage to buy a home. That's why the housing market is weakening. Home sales are coming down very rapidly. House prices are going flat. You know, it makes it more expensive to go out and buy a car to get an auto. You have to get an auto loan and, you know, that'll be more expensive. The cost of holding debt on your credit card, that's getting a lot more expensive and sapping people's purchasing power. Right. So none of this sounds good. None of this sounds good. The Fed's raising rates while I'm paying a lot at the grocery store and I'm paying a lot at the gas pump, even though the price of gas may be down like almost 75 cents since the record high in June. It's still historically very high. Yeah, it's not good. No, no, the economy is is really in a tough spot. I mean, look, look, Dave, we're struggling, but, but, you know, hopefully with the declining gasoline prices, with the slowing in growth, uh, that inflationary pressures start to come in. And if they do, then I think this economy has enough strength that it can manage its way through. But having said all of that, you know, obviously the risks are high and nothing else can go wrong. And goodness knows there's a lot that could go wrong. What would be the worst thing that could happen? You said a lot could go wrong. What you're 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 obviously a chief economist. What makes you worried the most? Well, there's the known unknowns, uh, you know, uh, around oil prices. So the European Union has sanctioned Russian oil. Very understandable. But they haven't implemented it yet. If they implement those sanctions and that Russian oil actually comes off the market, the gas, oil gasoline prices are going skyward again. That worries me. And then there's the unknown unknowns. I mean, the, you know, I just have this nightmare. What if a Cat 5 hurricane blows through the Gulf, hits the Texas coast, wipes out a refinery and gas that because there's no refining capacity, you, you see gasoline prices go back over five dollars a gallon. That would be enough as well. So. You know, it's really the, the key, the most, there's a lot of things to be nervous about. The thing I worry most about is, is those energy prices, those oil prices, gasoline prices. Nothing is more pernicious to people's pocketbooks and their collective psyche 
than having to you know go to the gas station and, and, and pay five dollars a gallon. That's just you know too much to bear. And it's not just us. I mean, diesel hit a record high. That affects companies. It affects shipping. It affects a lot of things, and they can't always eat that cost. They have to raise prices too. Exactly. That you know, those people don't recognize how important diesel is. You know, that goes to those food prices. You know, it goes to all the shipping costs. You know, whenever you get a package from Amazon or UPS or FedEx, you know, their costs are higher. And of course, jet fuel prices are higher as well, and that uh, raises the cost of shipping goods. And uh, obviously, if you're traveling this summer, you, you felt it in your ticket price. So, yeah, the effects of these higher energy prices, you know, are felt all throughout the economy. In the end. Do you think through this whole period, I know you don't think we're in a recession now. Do you think we will at some point hit one because of what's happened? It's going to be close, Dave. You know, I worry about it. I mean, I think the economy has enough resilience to manage its way through, but it needs a little bit of luck on the pandemic and the Russian invasion. And we need some really good, deft policymaking by the Fed. They got to thread the needle. They got to raise rates high enough, fast enough to slow growth, keep inflation expectations down but not so high so far that it undermines things like housing and pushes us in a recession. That's the definition of tricky. It's going to be tricky. Mark Zandi, Chief Economist, Moody's Analytics. Always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dave. Take care now. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. This is Stephen Moore with your Fox News commentary coming up. This week, senators held a hearing on opioids and synthetic opioids, especially fentanyl, as it pours into the country at an alarming rate. Fox's Bill Malusian has been reporting from the border for months and not just on the number of people crossing in. So in two separate incidents back to back, more than 50,000 fentanyl pills found at the Nogales, Arizona port of entry. That was just a couple of weeks ago, around the time when the DEA in Los Angeles announced they had seized roughly one million fake pills containing fentanyl in Inglewood, saying in a statement that in the first four months of this year, fentanyl-related seizures were up 64%. Last year, over three million fentanyl pills were seized, which they said was nearly a threefold increase over 2020. And that's just the Los Angeles area. In the hearing, Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy said last year saw the largest increase in opioid deaths in 50 years. More than 100,000 people died. We've got to control that border. If there's a message I wish the administration to get, use your tools to control. But Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy questioned the border argument. A lot of our colleagues think that by putting up this wall on the border, you're going to stop fentanyl from coming into the country. The reality is fentanyl is coming in through the ports. And so we can make investments, but the idea that it's the the un, the unwalled portions of the border where the fentanyl is pouring in is just not what the facts bear out. And when it comes to the ports, Senator Cassidy noted that cartels ship in fentanyl made with Chinese ingredients and chemicals through the mail and declare the packages are worth less than $800 to avoid CBP inspections. Fentanyl, obviously, is a very powerful synthetic opioid. It's made in labs. It's not plant-based. It's very addictive. It's very cheap. The cartels are taking total advantage of the addicted population and the market in America, and they're poisoning our country. Derek Malt is a former DEA special agent. I don't even look at fentanyl anymore as a drug because it's actually killing at historic levels. Like, we've never seen this in the history of the country. And that's part of the problem now. The lawmakers and some of the government officials, they're still talking with the old, antiquated 
talking points on the opioid crisis when kids were like taking legitimate prescription pills, oxycodone and different types of opioids that they were getting from the doctors and from the pill bottles. And they were all real drugs. These are fake drugs. This is not these are fake prescriptions. They're not real opioids They're It's fentanyl made in labs. And it's killing because they don't have like chemists that are mixing up the chemicals and making sure there's a small amount. And it only takes two milligrams to kill. So it's a it's a game changer in the crisis in America. But people aren't necessarily buying fentanyl, right? Like you said, they're buying a pill that they think is maybe like an oxycodone or a hydrocodone. And it's actually a counterfeit and it's laced with fentanyl. Is that what's is that sort of what's happening? Yes. Well, see, like what's happening is like the younger generation, you're you're hearing about a lot of 13 year olds, 14 year olds, 15 year olds that are dying from these fake pills. They're going out trying to buy legitimate type prescription drugs like Xanax or, you know, oxycodone or Adderall or Percocet because they for some reason they either have anxiety or they have other some type of you know issue going on that they think these drugs are going to help them. They definitely have no idea that the pills that they're buying are fake. They're coming from these filthy labs in Mexico, and they're going to kill them. So there's a whole new type of user because the Internet and the social media sites is giving people access that they never had before wow. because they, they're able to sell this stuff, and the younger generation is buying it. There's also a population of people that are very severely addicted that know this fentanyl on the streets. They want to buy fentanyl because fentanyl is going to give them the best high. And they really don't pay attention to whether or not it's going to kill them or not. They just need their high. And then there's a lot of casual drug users that may go out on a Friday night to use cocaine. They snort a couple of lines of cocaine, but they have no idea that the Mexican cartels are putting fentanyl in this cocaine. So they're dying and they have no idea it has fentanyl. Another issue that that came up and you just sort of referenced it there in the in the Senate hearing is where all this is coming from. Right. Physically, it's coming from Mexico. But you and I have talked about this before. A lot of the ingredients are coming from China. We know the Chinese government has rules against manufacturing and producing fentanyl. Uh, Still, it somehow gets to Mexico. Senator Cassidy was among those who was like, this is the Chinese communist government. If they want to stop the shipment of fentanyl ingredients, they, they just would. Do they do they just not want to? Well, look, there's a lot of people, including myself, that believe this is another tool in the Communist Party of China's toolbox to destabilize and destroy America. So it's part of their unrestricted warfare. Right now, I personally believe, based on all my years of experience and understanding of this issue, they are using the Mexican cartels as the proxy mm. to destroy America, just like Hezbollah is used by Iran as a proxy to do the dirty work for, for Iran. And it's the same concept. At first, they, they were actually sending mass amounts of fentanyl directly to America in the mail services through the Internet or the dark web. But now they started pushing their product directly to, to Mexico. And even now they're pushing like multi-ton quantities of precursor chemicals into the cartel's lab. So they're making it in Mexico now. So it's, it's an evolution. Now, one thing that a lot of people don't realize, and I was fortunate enough to be the head of the Special Operations Division to follow this evolution. They started bombing America back in like 2008, 2009 with synthetic cannabinoids and synthetic cathinones like K2, spice, bath salt. Yeah. And nobody in America knew what that stuff was. It was all coming from Wuhan-style labs. 
And that was going on for several years. And it hit us by surprise. Like I was the head of the operation. I never heard of, you know, synthetic marijuana, K2 spice. They're selling it in these little bags, attracting kids, you know, Scooby snacks and King Kong and all these colorful labels. And what was happening is these kids were smoking this stuff and they were getting seriously sick, respiratory illnesses. They were dying in some cases. Emergency room emissions were going up. This started in, you know, like I said, around 2009 or so. And then in about 2012, we started seeing fentanyl coming from these same labs. So they changed from pretty much the synthetic cannabinoids, cathinones to fentanyl. Then we started seeing all these deaths in America. As a matter of fact, in 2014, when I was still in charge of this operation, we started something called Operation Deadly Merchant. Because for the first time, we started seeing mass amounts of deaths in America with fentanyl on the streets laced in, fe- in heroin at the time, okay, primarily heroin, and we had no idea what was going on. It was all coming from these labs. And then this was going on every year. It was picking up momentum. We saw more and more Mexican cartel involvement. We saw Dominican distribution networks involved as well. But then when President Trump started putting pressure on China to classify their analogs and to control their analogs, the exports, then we started seeing another shift. Now the Chinese were sending pure fentanyl right to Mexico, which was then being mixed in all types of drugs. And and what was happening is we started seeing more and more deaths. So the deaths were escalating because it was pure fentanyl. And now what we're seeing is the cartels are making this stuff in the labs and they're now capitalizing on the pill market because Americans are so addicted to prescription pills. The cartels are now making a business decision with their creative and deceptive marketing plan to get as many people hooked on this drug to maximize profits. But unfortunately, it's killing Americans at record levels. Wow. That's terrifying. Derek, um, talk to me about the border, because we we see these large busts happening. Uh, There was a huge one a couple weeks ago in Los Angeles. I know you know about it. Um, Those men driving through Tulare County back in June, they didn't show up for their court hearing last week. They had thousands of fentanyl pills. But we also hear about these, you know, half a million gotaways, uh, people sneaking across the border just this fiscal year alone. Uh, and, and members of Congress were just at the border this week, Republicans begging for something to be done about the border. But then in the Senate hearing, you had others say, well, a lot of these drugs, these, these drug busts are happening at ports. Where are we in your mind on the border? What should be done at the border regarding fentanyl, regarding drugs that isn't being done? Well, for one... I was down in Arizona. I was down in Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. I got briefed up by the top experts in border security, former Homeland Security officials. These guys are my friends. Listen to the Border Patrol. Listen to the DPS in Texas. The bottom line is they have to finish the wall, and they have to force all traffic into America through the ports of entry. That's number one. Then we can put all the best resources and the latest and greatest technology, screening equipment, right there at the port of entry so we can maximize the interdictions of drugs Mm. and we can properly investigate all the immigrants that are coming in through the port of entry. If you have these openings in the wall, the cartels are taking total advantage. They're flooding the zone with the Border Patrol. They're sending their drugs, their high-value targets. They're bringing their money and the guns southbound because it's a wide-open border. And there's plenty of drugs that are coming through in between the port of entries. I do agree that the majority of the drugs in the tractor trailers are coming through the port of entries, right? But 
you got to understand the problem is that the border patrol is inundated with migrant processing and bureaucratic paperwork babysitting they can't do border security and they're right. doing a great job considering they don't have resources that's why you just saw another recent 5,000 pounds of methamphetamine that they seized in California. Back in November, they seized 17,500 pounds of meth, 400 pounds of fentanyl. They're seizing a lot of drugs, despite the fact that they have such limited uh, resources and the morale is down really low right now because they're not properly supported. They can't do the job that they were signed up for. So it's a total negligence on on behalf of the Department of Homeland Security, the White House, and everyone else responsible for security of our country. And the gotaways, to be honest with you, is the most scary part of it from my standpoint, because we investigated in Prancha Cassandra Hezbollah's role with the Mexican drug cartels. We exposed that while I was at the Special Operations Division, and we watched the intricate relationships building between Hezbollah, one of the world's most serious you know, terrorist organizations. They are all over that region. So we have no idea. Huh. All these known gotaways that they're reporting for 55000 a month, we don't even know who these people are, where they came from, what their motive is, why are they here, what are they going to do? They could be plotting stuff every day of the week right here in our backyards, and we wouldn't even know who they are or where they are. That's scary. Of course, you have to get more resources for law enforcement. You have to get more technology for law enforcement and CBP. And you have to buy the latest and greatest stuff because we're at war with these countries. That's the bottom line. It legitimately is. You can say what you want. People think this is a drug crisis. This is a mass poisoning on our future generation. And if we keep losing hundreds of thousands a year, who's going to be in the military? Who's going to be the pilots and the doctors and the lawyers and the bus drivers and the teachers? They're not going to be around because we're losing too many kids. So it's really sad, and it's very, very negligent on behalf of the government that they're not stepping up and they're not doing the job to protect the citizens first of America. Derek Maltz, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. We really appreciate it. Thank you, and have a great day. And... In other news, I'm Gianna Gelosi. Is your kid getting ready to go to kindergarten? A new study published in the journal Pediatrics has some ideas to make sure your kids get off to the right start. And it's not just a backpack, a lunchbox, or crayons, but it's at least 10 hours of sleep. Researchers monitored sleep duration of kindergartners over four week-long periods and had the kids' teachers evaluate their transition into formal schooling. It found that the more consistently children got 10 hours of sleep during the night, the better the children's peer relationships, relationships with teachers, overall academic performance, and sight recognition of words. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine already suggests that kindergarten-age kids get 10 to 13 hours of sleep, but that is over the course of the day and includes the sleeping at night and naps during the afternoon. But the journal Pediatric Study says that 10 hours of sleep at night makes all the difference. Researchers say if you have a little one getting ready to go to kindergarten, now may be the time to start those good sleep habits. They suggest a 9 p.m. bedtime or earlier, eliminating screens at least 30 minutes before bedtime, and developing a bedtime routine, like taking a bath, reading a book, and creating a calming environment. The study suggested establishing healthy nighttime sleep habits before the start of the school was especially helpful. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Jalosi.
you hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it. On demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Stephen Moore. What's on your mind? Liberals are very good at chasing rich people out of their states. Blue states lose billions of tax dollars and many tens of thousands of jobs as a result of the migration of rich people leaving high tax and high crime states. Consider Elon Musk. He left California for Texas. He paid $11 billion in federal and state taxes last year, and the state of California will likely lose billions in tax revenues now that he's gone. And that doesn't include all the property and sales taxes that he and his Tesla employees will now pay in Texas rather than in the Golden State. Texas, by the way, has no income tax. Then there was the famous story of investor Paul Tudor Jones. When he left Connecticut a few years ago and took his business and earnings to Florida, he single-handedly drilled a $40 million revenue hole in the state budget in Hartford. Billionaire Citadel Capital founder Ken Griffin, one of the most philanthropic residents in the history of Illinois, has moved to, where else, Florida. Bloomberg wrote a superb, well-researched story on what Griffin, who's 53 years old, has meant to the life and civil culture of Chicago. Griffin has donated more than $600 million to organizations in the Windy City since coming to Chicago. The Museum of Science and Industry plans to take on his name in 2024 thanks to his massive contributions to science. He has been a major donor to schools, churches, meal programs, Northwestern Medicine, the Field Museum, and the Chicago Symphony. Many of these organizations told Bloomberg that they worry whether they can replace such a generous benefactor. Good question. The moral of these stories is that class warfare liberals can't seem to help themselves. They always kill the geese that laid the golden eggs. Pretty soon, blue state America won't have any more rich geese to pluck. I'm Stephen Moore, a senior fellow at Freedom Works and the author of the new book, Govzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.